All right, the book of Esther tonight will, Lord willing, complete our study on this great Bible character. But we will return to the book of Esther, book of Esther this evening. Trust you had a good prayer time. I know we'll take our prayer lists and pray for one another throughout the week. I try to send out an email toward the end of the week with the prayer list that includes some of the updates from Wednesday night. And uh, Lord willing, we'll have another edition of the Berean Beacon uh, before the end of the week. And uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to uh, get that out as well and include some of the recent uh, activities and special music and some other things. So I'll be working on that this week as well. All right, so I know I have uh, spent some time building a lot of historical background, and I'm sorry if I bored you with too many historical details, but the book of Esther has so much historical background to really help us understand the context And I won't go back and spend a lot of time on that since we've already uh, studied that the last couple of Wednesday nights. But in looking at Esther's heritage, her family was uh, taken along with Mordecai's in the second captivity. 605 was when Nebuchadnezzar first raided Judah. And then in 597, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin, along with Several other of the Jews were, were taken and deported in 597. And that is probably when Mordecai's family and Esther's family was taken. Mordecai was probably not born yet, maybe a young child. Esther was not born yet. More than likely, she was born in Babylon and now the Persian Empire has taken over. Her name, Esther, is actually a Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. So, again, understanding the timeline, her parents and likely Mordecai's parents were all taken in 597. Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, gives a little bit of that biography, biographical background. And then Esther's parents die somewhere in the captivity sometime during that possibly the Babylonian Empire or the early days of the Persian Empire were not told when they died, but Mordecai became her caretaker, became her guardian, and basically raised her, according to Esther chapter 2. Her family was from the tribe of Benjamin in the southern kingdom there that also was with the tribe of Judah, and we know that was the southern kingdom. The other ten tribes were the northern kingdom, and they were uh, taken into captivity and overrun by the Assyrians in 722. The southern kingdom was conquered in three stages, 605, 597, and then in 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, we learn from chapter 2 and verse 7 that her parents had passed away. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And then there is the setting of the banquet. There was a 180-day Feast, summit, meeting, strategy session. Uh, It's described in chapter 1, and we understand in the historical context, there was probably six months of strategy as the king, Xerxes, his title, Hasuerus, is how he is named in the book of Esther. Hasuerus, we understand, is Xerxes, that's his Greek name. And he is planning an invasion of Greece. 
The Greek Empire is rising in power to the east, or excuse me, to the west. And the Greek Empire is becoming a threat. Xerxes, from what we understand in the historical records, there was a six-month summit strategy session. That's probably what is described in chapter 1. At the end of that 180 days, they have a seven-day feast. And this is a debauchery. This is a feast of drunkenness, of paganism. And in that seven-day feast is when Vashti or Vashti is invited to come. Again, in a pagan empire, drunken men, women are not respected. We've spent some time talking about this. Vashti, Vashti, for whatever reason, we're not told why, but she refuses to come. More than likely, she was going to be objectified or she was going to be asked to do something lewd or inappropriate. Whatever the case may be, knowing the context, knowing the kinds of pagan types of activities, and this being a wicked man who did not respect and give women the dignity and the respect that they deserved, it was probably not going to be a good thing for Vashti, for Vashti to come. She refuses, and again, that showed great disrespect, insubordination, to the empire of the world, the ruling empire, how could he allow his wife, his queen, to disrespect him that way? Again, we're talking about a pagan empire. We're talking about women being disrespected, harems, the degradation, the objectification of women, all of that bad stuff. As our culture is more and more pagan, as our culture is more and more ungodly, women are treated worse. Children are treated horribly. We have seen in our culture, and now there's even a push for pedophilia. And that is the next thing that is being exposed by the LGBT movement and the abuses of children. It's just the sewer is open. And in the pagan culture of this day, you have a king who now has been disrespected by a woman who is not given respect and dignity, how in the world could he allow this to continue? So he gets rid of her. There's a decree sent throughout the land that all men are the lords of their home, and they make sure that the king sets the standard by getting rid of his queen. And so that is the background here. So now, from the historical record, we understand that Xerxes attacks Greece, and the Greek rising Greek empire defeats Xerxes, and he comes back, and he's still trying to maintain his power and trying to rebuild his strength, and now he's looking for a new queen. So, of course, we know the story. From that search for a new queen, Esther is chosen to be among those 400 virgins who will make up the harem, who will eventually, one, will be chosen to be the new queen. Esther will benefit from Mordecai's wisdom, from her physical beauty, and the instruction of the eunuch who was in charge of the harem where Esther was at. Haggai is his name. We spent some time talking about beauty. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Obviously, it is okay, as the Bible does, to acknowledge the exceptional beauty of an individual. But there are principles about physical beauty that we must remember. 
It does not determine character. It is not the standard by which we treat people. It does not make a person of greater or less dignity, of more or less being made in the image of God. And the Bible is clear that physical beauty is not to be lusted after. But our culture has turned that around. And the culture makes way too much out of physical beauty. Handsomeness, physical ability. We see our culture making gods out of people who are beautiful, handsome, rich, have great physical ability. And we see our culture idolizing these kinds of people. And the Bible is very clear. Yes, there is such a thing as physical beauty, but God looks at the heart ultimately. And physical beauty is not to be lusted after. Lust not after her beauty in your heart. We read there in Proverbs 6 and verse 25. Proverbs 31 says what? Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And for every man, for every husband, his wife should be the most beautiful girl in all the world. And we're not going to get into all of the other principles and all the other um, ramifications of that. But the Bible is clear about what God thinks of physical beauty, and it is not to be a sinful thing to be lusted after or to be used in pride, as some people do with their handsomeness and with their beauty. They exploit it, they manipulate with it, and they are very arrogant and proud about it, and they use it to exploit and to manipulate and take advantage of people, and our culture is just full of examples of that. But enough said about that. Let's talk about her character. Let's spend some time here. Now, last week I left with a couple of questions. Some of the commentators have brought up the fact that she joined a harem. Did she join it voluntarily or did she join it by being drafted, (laughs) by being taken? And the Bible is not explicitly clear. It just says that she was chosen as the Servants were sent out to choose 400 virgins to be in the beauty pageant to determine who was going to be the next queen. Esther was chosen. Esther chapter number 2. The servants go out and, of course, Esther being very beautiful, they chose her and she is now brought into the harem and is going to, for the next year, be prepared to come into the presence of the king, and he will evaluate each of these 400 women to determine which one will be his new queen. So, I don't want to be overly negative here. One, Esther could very well have been chosen against her will. Very well, she could have just been picked because she was pretty, and she had all the external features that they were looking for, and she was taken against her will. It's possible that Mordecai and Esther saw this as an opportunity for her to maybe gain some fame or to gain some sort of standing because they were Jews and there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the empire at that time. And we know from Haman, the Agagite, who was a descendant of Agag, who was a Amalekite, who should have been annihilated. And and, uh, we know from Saul not completing his responsibility to eliminate the Amalekites. And Samuel had to actually hack Agag in pieces 
Well, Haman was an Agagite. He was from the Amalekites. So there we see that animosity towards the Jews. There was anti-Semitism in the empire. We know that from historical record. So it's possible that Esther and Mordecai saw her joining the harem, being a part of this beauty pageant, as being a way for the Jews to, to gain standing. But she was told not to divulge her, her ethnicity, her nationality. She was told not to say who, who, what, what people she was from. All that being said, I don't want to be overly dogmatic or overly negative. More than likely, it was against her will. More than likely, she was chosen because of her beauty and was taken and made a part of that group of 400 virgins to be considered to be the next queen, but probably not voluntarily. All right? Now, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not eat the king's meat. Daniel and his friends were, several decades earlier, taken, 605, well, 597, it wasn't even a full decade later, but of course Esther and Mordecai were probably born and, and raised later, so several decades later now, Esther and Mordecai are growing up in a pagan kingdom, and now she is a part of the king's harem in this 400 uh, women uh, beauty pageant contest to be the next queen, what kind of food did she have to eat? Did she purpose in her heart not to eat the king's meat? Again, I don't want to be overly negative, but she was in the position now where she had to take of the diet of whatever was given to the ladies in the harem. Again, I don't want to be overly negative, just something to think about, to consider. Should she have taken a stand there like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? Just something to, to, to think about. What about the immorality of the king and the pagan empire? Would she have been forced into any kind of immoral circumstances? From what we understand, there, were, there was none until the king chose his queen. But if she had not been chosen to be the queen, would she have remained in the harem? And we know that the harem served a purpose for the king that was immoral. So just something else to consider. And also some commentators have said that Mordecai and Esther probably could have, maybe not should have, again, we don't want to get too overly dogmatic here, but there was already a group of Jews had gone back to the, Pal to the promised land, to Palestine. They had already received the decree from Cyrus and a group had already gone back and there was between the first and the second return that the book of Esther takes place. Now, we know God in his providence is going to have Esther in a place to spare the Jews. We know that from the story. But we know that in 538, Zerubbabel took a group back to Palestine on the decree from Cyrus. Should Mordecai and Esther have already left? Should they have gone back? Some commentators say that they should have, or at least could have, gone back by this time. As a matter of fact, we know that in the book of Zechariah, there was a call by the, the, the prophet Zechariah to rebuild the temple because the Jews were even coming back to the land of Palestine and were getting very comfortable and getting very lazy and they had houses for themselves and they were rebuked for not building the temple. In the book of Zechariah, there is a call to build the temple, to quit being lazy about the things of God. They were very comfortable in their homes that they had come back to and rebuilt. But there's also in Psalm 137 a psalm of 
lament. In Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that, wa that wasted us required us of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou has served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. What's the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 137? We want to go back home. We're stuck in Babylon. We're under the judgment of God. God, bring the judgment on Babylon just like you had to bring judgment on Israel. We want that judgment of God to come on Babylon, on those who destroyed Jerusalem. But we long for Jerusalem. We long for Zion. How can we sing songs of joy in Babylon when we're in captivity? We want to go to Zion. We want to go home. We want to be where the Lord has us, his promised land. And we see that desire, but where's that desire in the book of Esther to be back in Palestine when Cyrus has already given the decree? Again, God is providentially working. It's just to say that as Mordecai and Esther were there in now the Persian Empire, the decree had been that they could go back, the Jews could go back. There were probably circumstances unknown to us that make it hard for people to travel. And there were things that had to be in place. And we're talking about hundreds of miles by foot or by horseback or by donkey. It's not like they could get in a nice plane or a nice climate-controlled vehicle. So there were circumstances that were there. So again, I don't want to be overly negative. But we do see a pragmatic faith at the beginning. And we see, we see that Esther had to make, in a sense, some compromises without being too negative. She had to make some compromises early on in order to be able to stay in the place that she was at and not get her head cut off or get cast out of the harem or whatever the consequences may have been. But we know that God was working because in Esther 2, Haggai saw that Esther was different. Okay? Her pragmatic faith was a, still a faith in God, and God was providentially working, and in that harem, among all those girls, among all those women, Esther stood out, similar to how Joseph stood out. The Lord was with him. We don't see that particular phrase in Esther 2, but we see the same kind of thing. And can I again make an appeal to our young people? You will make a difference when you determine that you are going to love God and serve God and do the very best in the place that God has you. No matter what your family circumstance is, no matter how bad your background is, no matter how much your mom and dad may have failed you, no matter what kind of ungodly environment you may have been forced into. Apparently, again, Esther was likely not voluntarily in this place. More than likely, she was chosen because of her beauty. Now she's in a very tough spot. She's in a harem among a, a pagan king. And she stands out because not just of her beauty, but because of her character. 
There was something about her. We know God was with her and God was working. But trust God in your circumstances. Don't get discouraged and defeated and throw in the white towel and put up the white flag of surrender and say, God, you can never use me. God, I can never get out of this mess. No, determine that by the Lord's help, you will see God do a work in your life and give you victory. I can think of my dad and my mom and some of the circumstances they told me about that God called them out from their family and God saved them and they determined they were going to love the Lord. One of our teachers at Cross Point, she came from a very bad home background. Her mom was not right with God in her early days. There was a divorce. There was immorality. And grandparents got involved. Her mom eventually got right with God. And that teacher there was one of the best teachers, one of the godliest teachers, one of the sweetest teachers. And we are still good friends with them to this day. And they are a testimony. That teacher is a trophy of God's grace who rose above her circumstances and all the things that were against her. And with the Lord's help, she is now teaching, I don't know, probably 25 years in a Christian school and loves the Lord. And God's given her a good husband and three wonderful children. And they are faithful in their church and they love the Lord. I looked at that situation and I heard about the background. I never would have thought it. But God gives grace, and we see that with Esther. And here's her courage. By Esther 4, in verse number 16, the famous quote, If I perish, I perish. Because what was now the circumstance? Her pragmatic faith was now a prudent faith. Now she has to go into this pagan king, whom she hadn't seen for 30 days. And in those days, the man had such a chauvinistic, misogynist, Wrong view of authority that even the queen, if she were not invited into his presence, she could be executed. She could be taken out if he did not want her in his presence. The queen, can you imagine? The queen, even she could be given a death sentence if she came into the king's presence at a time when he... Didn't want her there. But Esther determined, as she and Mordecai talked, and she realized that God had put her in this place for such a time as this. And she said, if I perish, I perish. And then chapters 4 and 5 are great acts of wisdom. We know that she was given the approval by the king to be in his presence. She asks for a meal. Haman comes. Esther comes, and they... Gather for that meal. And we see the wisdom of her actions. She considered her actions beforehand. She gathered the facts. She sought counsel from her cousin Mordecai. She prayed and fasted. Chapter 4 and verse 16, where she says, If I perish, I perish. She then says, this is where we see her faith going from pragmatic to prudent. Let's fast and pray. Because this is a serious time. The Jews have been given an edict that they will be Annihilated, Haman has tricked the king. The king says, I think it's the 13th day of the 12th month, the Jews will be annihilated. Genocide is coming. Esther and her people are going to die. Haman is an evil man who's tricked the king, and this edict cannot be undone. What are we going to do? And with great wisdom, she prays, they fast, 
They formed a plan of action. They assessed the situation. She invites the king and Haman to come back for another feast. That's where they adjusted the timing. And then they followed through with the plan with great courage. And we know the rest of the story as we get into the book of Esther. And for sake of time, we can only go through uh, briefly in summary that at the second feast, she asks about the sparing of her people. The edict cannot be undone. So what does the king do? He proclaims another edict that the Jews can defend themselves and they begin to prepare. And then they are able to defend themselves when the 13th day of the 12th month comes and we know the story that they have a great victory. So, with all that being said, what can we learn from the life of Esther? Did her faith grow? It was very pragmatic early on. Joining the harem, probably not voluntarily. Having to maybe make some compromises early on, just to even stay alive, just to even be able to continue. Mordecai was so worried about her every day, he's pacing outside the king's the palace, outside there where the harem is kept, wondering how she's doing. Okay, and then can you imagine his shock when she's called before the king and she's chosen to be the queen? So, you know, again, some commentators have even said, what, what business does a Jewish girl have intermarrying with a Gentile? You know, that's even one of the things. But I, again, I don't want to draw all the negatives. God is providentially working. And where our faith is sometimes very pragmatic and compromising, God in his grace and mercy helps us to get to a prudent faith that eventually becomes a providential faith where we're finally, truly trusting God the way we should, wholly and completely in submission. And Esther finally got into that place. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai says, Esther, we may not have done it all right up to this point, but we have got to do it right now. And Maybe God has called you to this place for such a time as this. And sometimes we're like that, right? We get ourselves in a place and we have done all kinds of stupid things and we've sort of kind of obeyed and sort of kind of followed God and we've kind of said, okay, God, if you help me here, I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you. And we've kind of done all these compromises and all of a sudden we get to a point where we're faced with the harsh reality of our choices. And what do we have to do? We have to decide whether we're going to say, if I perish, I perish. We're going to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and we're going to say, God, I know I've not done it all right up to this point, but Lord, help me. And in his mercy and his grace, many times he plucks us out of those messes that we're in. As we fully trust him and in his mercy and his goodness and his graciousness, he helps us out of that mess. And in the case of Esther, he saves the Jews and gives them an opportunity to defend themselves. And from that comes the Feast of Purim which was celebrated in March of this year and will be celebrated again in March of 2024. But we see some great lessons, a faith that went from pragmatic to prudent to providential. We see a relatively unknown group of people, Mordecai, Esther, and their family from the little tribe of Benjamin, from the insignificant and the unknown. God does great things as we yield ourselves to him. We need to be willing to do whatever God wants us to do, God expects us to step out in faith even when it is hard. God can help us overcome adverse family and cultural circumstances, and God can overcome our faithless actions through his grace and his mercy. So great lessons. I know I've rushed through these tonight, 
but we've spent a few weeks here. I hope this has been a help and an encouragement to us, and may we be faithful going forward to serve the Lord and obey Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for Esther, and Lord, how you used her in a tremendous way, even when early on it seems that her faith was lacking or weak. But Lord, ultimately, she learned to trust you and to obey. And Lord, may we be like Esther. And though our faith may be pragmatic and kind of self-centered at first, Lord, grow our faith to be prudent and providential, to love you more, and be faithful and obedient, no matter how hard the circumstances are. Help us, Lord, to be overcomers by your grace and by your mercy as we trust you and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Pray for Grace and Levi, um, Eric, as they travel back on Friday. And we look forward to being back together on Sunday.